0: I want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released abolitionist teaching workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting QuetzalEC.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com and if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a five percent discount on their abolitionist teaching pd series once again you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their connect with us page What is going on to Dog Nation. How y'all doing? My name is Gerardo Munoz. Um, and Kevin is not with us for this episode today. Kevin is getting some time off with family. Um, but we are two dope teachers and a mic. We are merely two public school educators in the city of Denver who are out here trying to remix the conversation on race, power, and education. Y'all, as we said um, at the top, super excited to bring you this episode. I am um, joined by four of like the dopest dopest humans that I've ever met in my life. And I have the opportunity to work with them in the Voices for Honest Education Fellowship. This is programming that is um, sponsored by Nickel, by Rally, and most importantly by the National Network of State Teachers of the Year. I have four incredible State Teachers of the Year with me today. Um, The first is Tracy Nance, how are you, Tracy?
1: Doing excellent. Happy to be here.
0: Yes, and here is happy that you are here. Uh, Wanda, in, oh, and Tracy is the 2020 and 2021 Georgia State Teacher of the Year, among other things that you will learn about as a matter of this episode. Um, next, we have Monica Washington, 2014 Texas Teacher of the Year. What's up, Monica?
2: Hey, hey, thank you for having me.
0: And this is Monica's second Appearance on the Two Dope Teachers in a mic podcast. So uh Monica is a, a veteran. Uh next in line, we have the homeboy Takeru Nagayoshi. T- K- <laughs> stumbling over your name. I practiced it and everything. Takeru, TK, how are you? I'm doing good. uh glad to be here. All right. And I am glad that you're here as well. And finally, we have my friend, despite being a New Orleans Pelicans fan, Chris Deere. What's up, Chris? 2020 uh louisiana teacher of the year oh man stoked to be here stoked to be here Nice, nah, great and i neglected to mention that takeru is the 2020 massachusetts teacher of the year so folks we have our um we have our panel discussion we're going to do a little bit of a round table here um you all know kind of the guidelines there will be some questions there are some folks that are going to lead us off with some of the questions but you always have the opportunity to speak on this. Before we hop into it, want you all to remember that if you are trying to find two dope teachers in a mic, maybe you're finding this episode for the first time. Uh, Maybe you saw what these amazing teachers of the year that you know, Um, are on this podcast. you want to know more about the podcast, we are at Two Dope Teachers on every social media platform, um, including TikTok, where we don't post anything, but we should. Um, But my daughter will murder me if I do. Um, And so it's just going to be one of those things that we'll have to negotiate as we go. So um, we're talking a little bit about um, this this work that we were all invited to. Um, The first thing I want to know from each of you is what is it that drew you to for Honest Education for this uh, fellowship through the National Network of State Teachers of the Year? And um, what is the lens that you kind of want to bring? And I, I actually want to kick this off uh, with Tracy and Monica, because you uh, were uh, two of the first people that I knew were doing this work. So if one of y'all wants to start us off, what is it that brought you into this work? And what lens do you think you bring?
1: um this work could not have come at a more opportune time for me I was born and raised in Atlanta Georgia and I know the impact that teachers have on a kid but importantly I know the impact that privilege can have on a kid my twin brother and I were taken in by our wealthy uncle and aunt and our entire lives changed and I saw immediately how important those things were and I wanted to make a difference um, I want to be in this work because I know kids and I know teachers and too often those voices are missing at the tables where decisions are being made. I want to be a part Absolutely. of
0: it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Monica.
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. So I think for me, um, what brings me to the work is the, the the knowledge that I was trying to do this work all the time and getting mm. so much pushback. and it was almost as as if being an advocate for students speaking up on behalf of teachers was seen as me being a troublemaker um, in some cases. And so when the opportunity to do that full time presented itself as like how could I not right this is this is what is so important to me Um, and I know that conditions have to be right for students conditions have to be right for teachers for us to do the things that we have to do and I feel and I know that this fellowship allows me to get right in there and to make sure that I'm doing as much as I possibly can to to improve those conditions and so yeah the fellowship it is.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it like, I don't know if, if you feel the same way. But when I saw um, that it was posted, I was like, hold up. So this stuff that I feel like I've needed to do in a clandestine way for my entire career, I can actually do and get paid for and, you know, and have it out in the open and have that is kind of a focus. So I definitely echo that. Um, take care. How about you? And then uh, and then we'll hear from Chris.
3: No, I mean, similar to Tracy, I was just so sick and tired of people who are outside of education, who are essentially hijacking the conversation on what's best for schools and students. Uh, and we know, right, that the public doesn't care about what politicians think about what's best for schools. They don't want politicians politics, right. the, nope. officials to the nope. agenda for public schools, they, they want our teachers, they want our local schools to make the right call on what and how to teach our kids. And I think because of the noise, because of the misinformation, because of the media's tendency to underrepresent our educator voices and expertise and overrepresent these bad faith reactionary actors who are making schools and educators and students an easy political target, right? Yeah. That need for us to actually speak back on and say, yeah. this is what we know to be true in education is stronger than ever. Yeah. Um, and as far as what I bring in, uh, a lot of my identities, right? Uh, I'm a gay Asian person, a son of immigrants from a bilingual background. Um, and so not only those different identities, but the intersection of those identities yeah. uh, is also another lens that I, I I hope to bring in the work that we do.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for um for sharing that perspective, TK, because we know that the ways in which these attacks have happened, especially in the last couple of years, has very much targeted communities that you consider home. And this is something that is, I think. I think we're at DEF CON one with how we how we step in and how we start defending these communities. Something else you said really echoed um, some reading I've been doing. I've been reading Dana Goldstein's book, The Teacher Wars, and this is an incredible book because it really, if you want a way folks to really understand why attacks happen on teachers in the communities that we serve. Um, you need not look any further than the last 150 years of public education and the ways in which teachers are stigmatized. So TK, thank you for naming that. As a person who moved out of the classroom this year and into um, a central office space, I can tell you um, there are not enough teachers in any educational space. Um, they're amazing people. They're amazing people that I work with um, who don't have education backgrounds and they do great work to help, but there's no substitute um, for teachers. And um, so, thank you for that, TK. Chris, how about you?
4: You just mentioned a book that changed my life. I mean, the ah. Teacher Wars is was it's incredible, and she goes all the way back to Reconstruction and how teachers were stigmatized. Yeah back in the day. Uh, But anyways, as a teacher, you know, there's only so much that we can do in the classroom and we do our best. I'm still in the classroom, but the more I began to learn about the problems we face in education, the problems teachers and and students face, the more I realized that there's so much going on at a systemic level. And I also noticed to reiterate what TK just said is that there are a lot of people who were making these decisions and who were pushing for political ideas regarding education that were not educators or teachers who had ever worked in the classroom. They had no experience in the classroom. And as teachers, we have more expertise in the classroom than a politician or someone working for a think tank. And so I really felt it was our time for our thoughts and perspectives and expertise to reflect what was going on nationwide and to, to sort of change the narrative in a way that does uplift teachers and students. So this opportunity came at a at a really important time, a really you know hyper politicized time, and I I couldn't I couldn't pass it up. No doubt.
0: Uh, I'm muted. There we go. The first lesson of recording things on Zoom. You'd think that I would know by now. Um, what I was saying is, really glad that you didn't pass it up. I think it's um, I think it's it's there's so much to balance and we'll talk about how you're balancing your life as a fellow and your life as a classroom teacher um the only one who's still a classroom teacher at the moment i mean still that sounds degrading who is currently a classroom teacher and sort of how you're you're looking at this um one of the things that i hear you all saying not just um not just right now but in in some of our gatherings is the ways in which teachers' perspectives tend to be attacked um, by a small number of bad actors um, who really seek the end of public education, right? Um, And it makes me think of something I tweeted a couple days ago about how I can't think of another profession that is as infantilized and patronized as the teaching profession um we saw this with covid where we were heroes for oh what would you what would you you all say it was like three or four weeks we were we were heroes a month Um, tops a month did you get a month i didn't get a month i'm saying tops (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah i mean You know, tops. And so, and so we know this. And and so we know that this is kind of the culture. And so um, I just shout out to you all for really stepping up to do this work. And we're gonna, you know, it's not without its risks, right? We've seen these things happen. And um, we'll, we'll touch on those a little bit. Um, So we're gonna do this first round of uh, questions, and then we'll have more of a free-flowing uh dialogue about some of the other elements of this work that people may not be aware of. Um, also, it occurs to me that this will this will air right before the end of 2022. If you are a state teacher of the year from any year, keep your eyes out for this fellowship for next year. Um, we're hoping that in conjunction with the funders and with the uh or finalists, yes. Um, that's right, it's open to finalists. I forgot about that. Um so uh, but in conjunction with our funders and partners at at the National Network of State Teachers of the Year, um, this we're hoping to build something amazing that you all can step into. So um want to start with uh, Monica, um, not only the longest tenured member of our little toy family, um, you were I, I don't mean older. I mean that you were teacher of the year in 2014. The rest of us are the rest of us are so 2020, uh, 2020s, you yeah. know. Um, And also the only person I've actually uh, hung out with like directly in person. Um, (laughs) So, uh, so, so when I look at kind of your kind of biography around being a state teacher of the year, you are a teacher in Texas. Texas is wild. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) When it comes to some of the ed policy and that kind of thing. What's your journey to and through this moment been like?
2: Mm. And I will say I am <laughs> There yeah. it is. No mm. hair <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, it has been very interesting I'll say and I and I'll go back to something I said earlier about trying to do this work from the classroom and I think doing a good job of advocating, right? We we weren't really talking about what's culturally responsive or what was, you know, best social, emotional learning that we could do. But if you enter this profession for the right reasons, you enter with those things as your lens anyway, it shouldn't be that we are entering for content. And so that was always important to me. And I didn't mention my own lens from which I, I, that I use. So it's a great time to to
0: do it. (laughs) Yes.
2: <laughs> South Memphis, South Memphis, where, you know, we probably most schools didn't have air conditioning um, and we didn't have all the resources we needed. And so we had to make do like as a student, we were making do our teachers were making do. And then when I became a teacher in Memphis, I found myself doing that same thing and and wondering, like, how I could have come through this whole system. And then by the time I got to be a teacher in it, things still weren't corrected. Things still weren't yeah. better. Um and then, and not knowing really much about policy and how policy, you know, impacts my my life and my students' lives, and um, not understanding how No Child Left Behind got to be, and not knowing that teachers weren't at the table, right? So, just knocking on doors, asking people questions, and realizing that nobody is really asking us anything, um, and so I just started to to show up in spaces and ask questions to. The, the leaders in the school and in the district yeah. about why, right? Why and how are my, are my favorite two questions to to ask leaders. Um, and I found out that they didn't really know a lot of the why that they did uh, certain things, really bad policies that were really not allowing our students to enjoy school in the way that they that they deserve to enjoy school. Um, and when I became state teacher of the year. Uh, I went to the Capitol, talked to, uh, we have an elected um, state superintendent and he was talking about, you know, some of the things that we were doing and he's like, oh yeah, we've got this teacher advisory council. And I was so like excited and I wanted to know what teachers were on the council. And then he told me, no, Monica, there are no teachers on the teacher's council. And I like almost fell out of my chair that (laughs) that that could be a thing that you can call it that, but it can be filled with lobbyists and people who are running organizations organizations and that made me mad right yeah. it made me, mad. it, made me mad. it made me want to to advocate even more and so I went back to school and um created my own little advisory council there with teachers and uh I to do that work and to to have like monthly meetings where we showed up and we talked about the things that were not right for kids but then we always tried to show up with a way to make it better um so that that is what I bring to the yeah. work been my journey of seeing not knowing well as a student seeing so many things wrong and then making my way through a system that just never was fixed and to this day I still see a lot of the same things that I saw as Monica Carver High School 1993 as a senior those things still haven't been fixed and so that's my inspiration for for doing the work it makes me mad that we're still fighting for the same things but can't can't quit.
0: Yeah, no, I don't I, it, know
2: if I answered the question, but
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and 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 if you didn't, then the question was wrong. That's the way I see it. Um, but you, but you did. I think you really did. And I think one of the things that really occurs to me is, you know, I I came into my year of service as Colorado Teacher of the Year with with a very myopic view. I knew what was happening in my locality. A little bit what was happening in my state, but no understanding of what was happening um, across the country. And Monica, through talking with you and then through meeting some incredible Latinx educators when I was at the ALAS conference in Puerto Rico, realizing that the work is different. In a place where the union is not permitted, right? The work is different in places that um, don't have reputations for being socially progressive, um, or particularly enlightened and what I found, um, not only from your hearing about your work, is that so much of the work is very grassroots and very local and that's like a beautiful thing. So I'm going to be one of the first people here to say that um I had Texas wrong. I had a lot of y'all states wrong, not even going to lie. Speaking of a uh, state that I had wrong, Tracy Nance. Um <laughs> so one of the things that um one of the things that really um causes me to just stand in awe of some of the work that you do is You're in Georgia, and again, um, some of the things that you've shared and some of the things that we see in the headlines um, regarding education in Georgia is intense. Um, but you have been a fixture in this congressional discourse. You are confronting attacks on honest education and policy spaces. Um, you've engaged in some things that are incredibly powerful on behalf of students, teachers, and families, um, that want the best for their kids uh, for the future. Um, talk a little bit about why policy is is an item of passion for you. And I want to also um, include that I've talked to a number of teachers who will tell me that they find policy to be boring, that they zone out and they tune out and they don't want to just let me be with my kids and let me teach my classes And don't bother me with policy things and all that kind of thing. This is an item of really obvious passion for you. Um, Why don't you speak on that and why more of us need to be keyed in to policy conversations?
1: Yeah, thanks, G. It's, It's so important. It's terribly important and I understand why some teachers see it as boring or really just that it's this thing over here that we're going to trust the government to take care of because we have these elected officials and what could be more important than all those tiny humans that are in front of you. When you're in that classroom.
0: We think everybody thinks of it in the ways that teachers think of it,
1: right? Yeah, you think everyone thinks that way. I mean, even when you're inside the four walls of your classroom, you assume that every other classroom looks like yours, too, and that they're all changing the way that you do, too. Um, But yeah, I can see why it would be easy because I did. I was focused on my students and becoming a state teacher of the year really started throwing me in the mix, a part of it being just the credibility that the platform lends itself I was not really allowed to, you know, they couldn't discipline me. Atlanta public schools couldn't discipline me. The state of Georgia couldn't mm. discipline me. I'd been given this award and had already traveled the state for 27 months. <laughs> That's on amazing.
0: Education. You can't tell me ed- nothing. You were, you were like Kanye, but in a good way.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's wild. They had me speaking on equity and talking about the power of teachers They asked me to stay on for a second year at the height of the pandemic um, and the height of the summer of racial (laughs) reckoning. And then things started getting crazy here in Georgia. Um, There were a couple of things that led me to the space of policy is where my voice is needed right now. Um, One of them is that when I was traveling the state, I realized that all of these people we put on a pedestal, school board members, school principals, superintendents, they're just people. They are normal, everyday
0: I mean, most of them. No.
1: (laughs) They're people. They're regular folks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of them don't have near enough expertise as the same as, you know, as teachers and as parents. So I saw that really being important during that Atlanta public school teacher protest when they weren't allowing vulnerable employees to telework. Um, Again, hundreds and hundreds of teachers saying, will you say this for me? Will you speak out for me? I organized a big Zoom of over 500 educators with Channel 2 News, um, titling themselves with anonymous names to speak out. Um, And then a person running for a school board in APS called me and was asking for um, campaign donations. And I told him that I was doing this other work within education. He said, well, teachers just don't ever speak up and show up. And I was like, "What?
0: wow, Um, just because you're not paying attention doesn't mean that we're not speaking up. We have
1: to show up. I I realized how easy it is to go to a school board meeting. Um, And these are some things that I would love to add to the show notes, just some links, some ways to reach out to your policymakers. We even have drafted form letters where you can borrow and then add your own magic and spice. It's absolutely critical. Our voices are needed.
0: And and that is really important because I do think that, you know, I, I agree with what you say a lot of us as teachers and I, I've been one of them in the past. You don't know where to start with policy. It feels overwhelming. If the more you educate yourself about it, the less confident you feel that you can engage in and understand it. Um, but it's it's important. That just like these folks you're referring to, teachers or people with perspectives um, that absolutely matter. Um, shout out to Dr. Tabor and I took your critical policy analysis class about a year ago. I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but that was really started to break down the walls for me and to really understand some things. Um, We're going to shift gears really quickly um, to Chris, uh, Louisiana Teacher of the Year from 2020. Um, You're the only member of our crew that is working as a classroom teacher currently. Um, So how has engaging the work of honest education been for you as you do both of those things so you're out here uh publicly we're going to talk a little bit about social media later in the show um and then you'll know all of these folks on the call with me uh need you need to be following um all of them on social media um but so chris how has this work been for you as you continue to show up every day for kids
4: yeah, you know it's been super eye opening to be able to to teach students during the day at the at this micro level at this community level, and then hop on meetings with y'all and with politicians after work to kind of see what's going on from your classroom macro. too.
0: We we've yeah. gotten we've gotten little glances of your classroom, and that's that's very cool.
4: <laughs> that is true, and it's cool to like tell my students what I'm doing too. They're like, like they'll stay after class to chat and and whatnot. So you do I'll share with on. your
0: students this work that you're doing. Oh.
4: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, That's they amazing. think it's yeah, they think it's really cool and and whatnot. Yeah. So, but yeah, you know, it's it's in many ways it's inspirational and sort of uh, revitalizes this this why I do the work and stay in the classroom because as y'all know, it's easy to get uh, dissolution with all the pressures we have as teachers. But you know, having a crew like y'all that are so committed to advocating for teachers and students in positive ways, it's it's kind of uh, motivational and it keeps my my why centered. But also being a teacher. And still being in the classroom is is really interesting while I do this work because it has changed with over you know in the last few years, especially within the last year. The you know with increasing stigmatization and polarization. I mean, we have politicians and talk show hosts that that bash teachers and scapegoat us uh, yeah. seemingly almost every night for societal issues that we yeah. work so hard to try to rectify in our classrooms. All yeah. these issues that happen at the societal level yeah. we face. That in our classroom, and we work so hard to to help students who are uh, facing these issues. So to have have that lens during a time as an advocate, I think is is truly unique. I mean, there was a time when legislators in Louisiana tried to pass an anti CRT CRT bill, which (laughs) you know, as you and and your listeners know, it's really just designed to stop teaching honest history. Yeah, I can't remember the exact wording, but you couldn't teach about race or issues like that, that might be discomforting or something to students. I think
0: divisive is one word that's been used, but I don't know if it, what it was in Louisiana though.
4: (laughs) Divisive was definitely a word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as a teacher, I can advocate against this and give perspective on why it's wrong from a history teacher's perspective, who's right in the classroom, who wakes up every day and does this work. And so, you know, we advocated against this bill. We wrote op-eds, did interviews, we sent in questions and stuff. And I can do all of this from a history teacher's perspective, and I think that's that's unique to say during this time. And also, the teachers and students won. Louisiana didn't pass an anti-CRT or anti-honest education bill, which, if you know a lot about Louisiana politics, it's it's really shocking. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, just being a history teacher during this time is is truly a a unique lens to, to yeah. see to see the world.
0: And if y'all don't follow um Chris on social media, um, you're really missing out. Like I, I think that this is an individual who who knows the game and and who's fierce. And I, I say that about everybody on this um on this panel, the the ways that you have learned to deal with that. In a little bit, we will talk a little bit about um how each of these spaces looks because one thing that I've learned in this work with you all um these last few months is that the work lives everywhere, but it takes a different form depending on where you are. Um, so we're going to move to uh, to TK, Takeru. Quick question for you. It doesn't have to be quick, actually. It's not a quick question. There's a lot in there. Um, so I don't know if you had the same experience that I did when I was able to let people know that I was a part of this fellowship. People would be like, oh, yeah, Tracy from Georgia. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, oh, Louisiana. Yeah, that makes sense. Texas. That makes sense. Colorado like Massachusetts I think there's a lot of um there there's a there's a lot of sort of naivete about harmful attitudes that are directed at marginalized and minoritized communities the the stereotype is it's all in the south we don't have this in the north we don't have this out west um, what does the work look like in your communities? I want to emphasize multiple communities because at the top, you sort of named um, the intersections of your identity and how those all are really important to you in the work. So what does the work look like in your place and time? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you for naming that. I, and
3: similar to you, I don't agree with that framing, right? That, you know, all parts of the country, regardless of whether they're red or blue, they need consistent advocacy around honesty. 100%. Right. And and so I'm Massachusetts. I'm also a product of New Jersey public schools. And so, as far as education communities are concerned, and its intersection with politics, I do think of it as yes, more progressive, liberal spaces, uh, which at least in theory are more supportive of honest and inclusive education. Yeah. Um, and I think here's the danger, though. Right. Um, while there is a political stronghold uh, in our state houses, our elected offices, uh, to protect schools against this legislative onslaught that. Uh, is yeah. taking place across the country uh, that doesn't mean that even within our blue places there aren't pockets of anti-honest education sentiment growing uh, and as we're seeing this sort of force metastasize across the country we're also seeing yeah. a lot of the indirect ways in which it impacts uh, even you know states like massachusetts and and, and, and new yeah. jersey um and so like right we at this fellowship, we talk talked a lot about our, our um, the bills, the anti-CRT bills, the book bans, mm-hmm. the gag orders. Um, even in states like Massachusetts and New Jersey, they make it on the docket, right? New Jersey yeah. just introduced an anti-trans bill that's trying to prevent gender affirming care for young people. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, even if those bills don't get passed, just by being platformed, they're still impacting our educators, they're still right. impacting our students. It's creating right. a chilling effect. Um, It's poisoning our discourse. It's scaring teachers away from actually leaning in to the honest and inclusive pedagogical principles that we know to be true. Um, I left the classroom around the time when a lot of this anti-CRT discourse was ramping up. Uh, And I noticed that a lot of my colleagues, they started self-censoring their curriculum, their lessons out of retribution. Librarians were taking books out, um, especially right now around LGBTQ topics because they're afraid of being targeted as groomers. Uh, and schools, right? They're asking departments to avoid these concepts around diversity, equity, because they they just don't wanna deal with the noise. It's not because right. they agree with it.
0: It's just- Yeah, it's the- not because they think they're wrong or yeah. that they're doing, they're engaging in anything educationally unethical. It's mm-hmm. because there is such a vested interest in misrepresenting this work oh. that it's like, is it worth it, man? Sorry, I interrupted you though.
3: No, and that's <laughs> part of the design, right? Like, let's make the situation so cumbersome that like the onus of having to respond is gonna happen on the school teachers, are gonna happen on the school leaders, that like we're gonna overwhelm and flood them, uh, like hose them with information and they have to deal with the uh, outcome of that. And the people who are making these attacks don't have to do their due diligence around the science or the research or evidence. And so when we think about these consequences, right? um, I also think like uh, those are the harms, uh, specifically this this chilling effect. Um, But I also think that like we're not seeing the good things happen either and Mm. so by that i mean right anti-honest education um when those attacks happen they're also dampening enthusiasm for great things that should be taking place that's right Uh, and i remember right from massachusetts when uh the the wake of george floyd's murder there were so many leaders and organizations rallying together saying anti-racism anti-bias equity work is important um But since this anti-honest education movement started to take hold, those same organizations and those same leaders, they're more silent, uh, they're mm. less enthusiastic, there's greater yeah. reluctance to uh, advocate on behalf of the things that we know to be true. Um, yeah. and to give you one specific example, in the state of Massachusetts, I have been working for the past three years to help pass legislation on an inclusive curriculum bill that would recognize the contributions of LGBTQ plus people in history. It was a bill that you know, teachers got together um, and, and, and tried to pass uh, in the houses, um, you know, consulted with a lot of our legislators, we submitted testimonies, we spoke at committee hearings, we even combined forces with other anti-racist, anti-bias a curriculum bills to increase the chances that the bill gets passed right in Massachusetts and it yeah. hasn't gone through um mm. and I think that's such a great example of like in these so-called states that we might not think that there is much of an issue there's also not a sense of urgency uh yeah. in these states and I think a lot of liberal people <laughs> they yeah. have this like let's not rock the boat mentality that's right that's, that's right right we, 100% we, we, we roll ourselves in this false sense of security yeah. Uh, these terrible things they happen to other districts and other sites yeah. not in our neighborhood
0: couldn't happen here so,
3: yeah <laughs> so part of that work that we do in in our communities here is 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 overcoming that kind of mentality
0: yeah Th- thank you for naming that because i think that's i think that's a really important thing to keep in mind colorado is a little bit different in that way where Colorado had been a very conservative state for most of the time growing up. I think um, it was to the point where when Reagan ran for president twice, the his opponent didn't bother to campaign here because Colorado was considered to be kind of a lost cause. And over the last few years, um, there are some weird takes about why it's become more progressive, but Colorado has become progressive. And yet. Our social studies standards were almost complete. (laughs) Yes, maybe it was the legalization of certain things that happened in Colorado back in the day. Um, But the um, but, you know, what we what we have seen is that there's still these pockets and there are these places. We had to fight for our social studies standards that did exactly what it is that you're trying to do, which is to recognize the contributions of marginalized and minoritized people. Shout out Serena Gutierrez and uh, Julie Gonzalez in Colorado State Legislature uh, for passing that. And and we narrowly uh, were able to preserve those. So, you know uh, you know, I don't want to say you're not safe anywhere, but it's kind of like that. Um, at the same time, there's opportunity everywhere to kind of do this work. We're going to take a really quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about how all of us are able to sort of participate and what the work looks like in various places. Stay with us on Two Dope Teachers and a mic. What's up, Two Dope Peoples? Uh, we're back. I'm back. Get out of the Munoz. Kevin is not back, but he wasn't here to begin with. So. Um, he can't really be back if he didn't come in the first place uh but he, he'll be with us don't don't worry y'all been asking where Kevin been Kevin is in this teaching grind I'm not in this teaching grind right now and so uh when when Kevin is freed from um his <laughs> unpacking decompressing then then he'll be back and we'll be doing this I saw a uh, a meme that started off with what it's like to teach in December and um the first line is nobody's listening to you. (laughs) And so I remember those days. Um, So we're going to, there's a bunch of places where the work that we have been doing as uh, Voices for Honest Education Fellows lives. And I don't know about y'all, I was like kind of blown away by all the various places um, that this stuff is happening and all of the sort of moving parts when you're engaging in a national discourse. So we're going to talk a little bit about How this work looks in social media, how this work looks in policy spaces, um, how this work looks if you're from a marginalized or minoritized community, and we'll sort of talk a little bit about all that kind of stuff. Um, So uh, the the social media presence of the Voices for Honest Education Fellows um, is powerful. Like y'all are amazing. And um, in a time of Elon Musk's, you know, sort of whatever malfeasance he's doing in Twitter, y'all are still at the top of my feed all the time. And so this is good stuff. Um, Chris, you know the social media world in ways that I am still coming to grips with. Like, um, this is this is a real study for me. Chris, why don't you start us off? Kind of kind of share with us a little bit about what um what the the social media space is what it isn't when it comes to these conversations and everyone else can chime in as well.
4: You know, it was really interesting how I, I, you know, started getting into social media. I was teaching during COVID and I was given, you know, them, I was making these videos for, for students and they were kind of long. And then, some of my students said, you should make, you know,
0: TikTok videos. It's <laughs> so if and only I was like, there was a shorter format that I yeah. could use to teach my students. <laughs> yeah. Everybody and is smiling right now. I just want to point this yeah. out.
4: <laughs> yeah, they were. And I was <laughs> like, ah, you're not going to catch me on that clock app or whatever, you know, at the time. That's <laughs> 2021. And then I was like, wait a second. They were bringing in knowledge from this app that uh, students usually don't know about. So I started engaging And so that's probably the main way that I engage with honest education is by making these TikTok videos that highlight marginalized history to somewhat, you know, ensure that students who might not be getting this history still see this honest history. Because there are a lot of students who are in classrooms where the teachers literally can't teach certain aspects of U.S. history or they won't teach it because, you know, uh, it's been demonized as CRT or some sort of like wokeness. I, I did that in quotes, by the way. I don't know. If- <laughs> right. It's air quotes.
0: You can't see the air quotes yeah. <laughs> on the audio.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and as TK was saying, teachers and librarians, they're self-censoring. They're editing their curriculum. They're taking out books. Well, with the internet, you know, you can't stop kids from getting historical truth. Really so as much as people try to bury this history, the more kids and they kids know when they're being, you know, misled, they, they know they're 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 very much aware than that people give them credit for yeah. it. they're going to go find this history in unique ways so with my tiktok videos and with many other history teachers now students they can learn you know things about uh, black leaders and politicians from the reconstruction era or um, uh, a labor movement where multiple different groups came together or lgbtq historical yeah. figures so it's it's been really powerful in that way but like you said i'm also on you know twitter highlighting and promoting honest education and authentic history and and talking politics but that's that's really messy and unfortunately twitter has been less productive as of late than before but but still can be a good avenue to to push forward ideas and and articles and whatnot yeah
0: what about others what what would you yeah go ahead tk Uh,
3: This. So I just wanted to make a plug for him. Like his TikToks are so amazing. And part of what makes it so amazing is he's prolific and has a way of opining on current events in a way that's not only student friendly, but contextualizes the issues in a broader historical context. And so if you're an educator and something happens in the news and current events and international news that you feel like, I don't know how to explain this, particularly through a way that's conscientious about like equity what needs to be done right in terms of student affirming and understanding you know the broader context at play like chris is your go-to guy because he will have within a day uh, a take on it a way of understanding and processing it that you can model for your own students
4: i just want to say that i i paid tk 50 bucks to say that no i'm just kidding i really appreciate TK.
0: You know, uh, TK is worth way more. Thing. Way more. You should have paid a lot yeah, more. Five hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. Know your worth, TK. Know your worth. <laughs> I appreciate the kind words. I appreciate
2: it's, it. it. It's the primary sources that get me too. So, like, mm. as an American literature teacher, I was always looking for those, and always having them look for those. And I find myself like going back to see, like, oh, let me see that picture. Like, where did Chris even get that picture? And like dropping the, just dropping at the bottom, like where he got things. So I know there are a lot of people on social media. Who who, who do the same thing without the receipts to back it up. But Chris always has the receipts.
0: Yeah.
4: Gotta yeah. bring the receipts
0: somewhere in my head. I want at some point I want to um, I want to put Chris and my friend Bram Hubble, who manages the Liberating Narratives account on um, on Instagram, just put them in a room and just see what happens. Because like because because Bram has a similar approach, but his is more focused on documents. He doesn't do the videos and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that that's not in his wheelhouse. But man, that would be fun. It'd be so cool. Yeah, I would love all that. kinds of people. Yeah. What are some other thoughts we have? So we can kind of move into like social media and um the political discourse. And as Chris kind of mentioned, um on Twitter especially, um, it's it's getting a little messy out there. It's kind of wild in those Twitter streets. Um t- let's talk a little bit about just how we've all engaged in some of the discourse on social media and what that's been like and why we feel like that's an important place to engage, messy though it may be. And maybe I can hear from from Monica and Tracy, since you've been doing a lot of policy work, we can kind of bridge that.
2: I'll say one of the things that really I think about a lot is because it can feel messy for sure, but it can also be just disgusting. And it can be tiring and it can yeah. make you want to just not look, just find a pillow, just cover up and yeah. not, not want to be engaging. Like how many,
0: na- how many names can you be called before you're Absolutely. like, you know what, I need a break.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, I don't know, I think as we engage with people, around, especially around honest education, I think it's important to know that there are some people who have their position who do not ever plan to change their position. You can come with all the facts. You can, you know, show them all the things. Um, you can tie it to kids. You can try to make sure you, you know, have a common ground with them. And they have an agenda and you can't change it. And so I think it's important to know right. when to back away. And it's also important to realize like where the teachable moments are. And I think that's something that we all, we all sort of know, like we can see within a space when we're able to persuade someone and when it's not going anywhere. And um I think that's been, that's been a fun part for me is watching all of you and learning how you're engaging um, with people and how you keep your cool. Like that is so, (laughs) I I don't always do that. Like I have to just like put it down like done, but then I'll see Chris, I'll see Tracy and I'm like, oh, how do they keep their cool? They've been called names. Um, But then to move people even after that, like Tracy probably will share this with you, but even to have someone apologize to you after calling you names because you were able to back up what you were saying with some thought-provoking things. And so I just think that we have to know when to – it's important to always try to engage, but we should also know when to disengage as well because it is hard. What we do as educators is hard enough and if it becomes so much that it feels heavy and it doesn't allow us to be the light that we need to be in this world, then that's why we have each other. That's why we do the work in community. When I can't do it, I can tag someone else, step out and let them yeah. handle it and then come back when I can, when I've gathered myself. And so, um, yeah, engage, yeah. and engage.
0: <laughs> no, I agree. And it's it's funny because I, I look at the poise and the confidence that Chris and Tracy kind of come with and, and they're just kind of like no 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 and and it's just wild to me because like again like like you um i i get angry and it and it's and it's frustrating and it's upsetting but that's a really important kind of perspective. Trace, you wanted to add something it yeah. looked like.
1: You know, we've learned a little bit about being in these social media spaces. You know, kind of mm-hmm. what TK was saying earlier, we don't want to sit back and say, "Oh, we don't have to worry about that." You know, or say that, "Well, that space is ugly. I'm going to leave the playground and go somewhere else." Yeah. Like, no, we found that we need to speak up. And like social
0: different. media is a version of the real world, isn't it? it like is. it, people talk about how it's not the real world. And yet people are getting ideas and repeating things in the real world that they're seeing on social media. I interrupted you. I've really that Oh, it. no, Sorry.
1: just complete misinformation. And so when you're out there on this playground with the bullies, uh, just remember to humanize the situation, Right. Just humanize it. Like I'm not, you know, I'm an elementary teacher. <laughs> I yeah. teach how to read. We yeah. read culturally responsive books and no, I'm, you know, um, but humanize it and but definitely speak up and speak from a place of shared values. Right. Mm. We know that 87% of parents agree that we should be teaching our kids a full history and yeah. teaching, you know, kids how to have a better tomorrow and preparing them for it. We can really get behind shared values, and it's important to keep that in mind.
0: And I think that's really important when we start thinking about how we take humanizing into policy. We we have to remember that, that policy ideas impact real humans, and they have implications for real people. And I think bringing that back and always looking for the shared values and welcoming the dialogue when it's in earnest and when it's is in in the right mindset is important. Um, TK one of the things that I think um I was hoping you could speak to a little bit is when I when I think about some of our shared background right um we both come from communities of color we both um, are children of immigrants and there can be a lot of layers and then your, um, your membership in the LGBTQ community is is so important as far as that goes. Sometimes, man, I, I look at you and I wonder, why, why do you want this smoke? Like it's like you haven't been through enough in your life <laughs> to come and sort of, you know, and in, invite this. And I and I say that with respect because I think that it is complicated when maybe the values I grew up with are kind of counter to this speaking out and speaking up and being in front of people. Um, and I'm a cishet dude. And so the, these are things that, you know, there's a limit to where I kind of empathize, but like where I feel a connection, but talk a little bit about that. Like where, what does it mean to come from a marginalized community and to, and to engage in this work and why is it important for more of us to do that?
3: Yeah. You know, one of the things that our fellowship has been training us in um is this idea of not letting the opposition control the narrative um and, and i was thinking about like how marginalized communities have been doing that like forever right they create their own discourse they don't allow That's right. bad faith divisive reactionary actors to control the narrative because mm-hmm. if we let them do so For marginalized communities especially, it means us having to debate our own humanity, why we should exist, why we should have rights, why we deserve to be uh, considered as people, right? Um, And so marginalized communities are actually really good at not speaking on the terms uh, that are defined by these groups oftentimes who yield power. Uh, And we do this by, by, by talking about things on our terms, the truth, and 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 the truth that's based on research, on empathy, and this belief, particularly for honest education, that all students deserve access to a full education that affirms yeah. them, that upholds them. Um and, and and I think part of how we do that, right, uh, in terms of speaking our own truths and, and us controlling the narrative, uh, is describing really the positive impact, the assets of what we can bring. Um, I do this a lot, like for the the, the college essays that I help with my students, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. Like, like uh, I want to go to the school because you know I'm a person of color um, uh, and, and representation matters and those are really true things in the abstract but sure. one of the ways in which I try to nudge them is by having them think uh, what does being a person of color mean in terms of the perspective that you add to the campus community that you're yeah. in? Uh, and I think some of the things that marginalized communities uh, when they do when they control the narrative in a way that's the best is when we are able to define ourselves not by narratives of oppression um, even though that's part of the discourse but also through narratives of joy of aspiration of our contributions uh, and really the positive ways in which we can inspire hope Um, and so i think that's always an antidote people are more likely to change when you inspire them and give them a sense of hope and yeah. so, while it's important to highlight the negative things that are happening, uh, owning our own discourse, um, but owning it in a way that is happy and sparkly, uh, in the ways that it has to, I think, is also an important takeaway.
0: Yeah, so that's what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> I get in the I get in the rabbit hole, and it gets really frustrating. I mean, that's one thing that's been really beautiful about getting to know all of you is, you know, we we have our official conversations, and then we'll have let's call them our unofficial conversations. And I feel like, um, I, I get to see your authentic voices all the time and I, and I love it. And it, and it's a beautiful thing.
2: I was going to add to, you know, as, as a black woman, there is this perception that you're angry and you're loud and you're you know and so then you're gonna go do a fellowship that requires you to be really loud right that you need to be loud you need to talk a lot um and so and and I've had people say to me like oh you you go say it like it's easy for you and I'll just say like for people in marginalized communities it's not always easy it's necessary but it is not always easy to borrow your phrase right to take the smoke to know that you're going to get the smoke so you just have to realize like I'm going to take this that I feel and move it to the side because I need to center other people. Um, it's almost like a decentering of self to center someone else. But at the same time, you are saying, like, as a person of color, and it is not only our job, right, to speak up about things that um, are wrong and that have been done and discriminated against the whole community. It's not yeah. us that like only us, but I think that when we do it and we are authentic and we step out there and we're able to take it, I just wanna let anybody know who's listening that it does not always feel good and it's not always easy. And it, if the most articulate person, the most you know well-read person who you think may not be struggling, it's a struggle to do that. And yeah. so you have to spend something emotionally to be a person of color, to get out there and to advocate. So there is something that is spent, Um, but we spend it because we know the gains are on the other side. Yeah.
0: It's got a cost. It absolutely has a cost. And, you know, I, I think that, and thank you for, for naming that Monica, because, you know, I think that you are definitely an individual who you just always are so poised and so prepared. And I think people who don't know you don't, don't always, they don't see the work that, that goes into that. And, you know, we talk about emotional labor and, you know, there have been numerous uh, studies on the impact of emotional labor, particularly on black women teachers and how that is exhausting. And there's the whole, you know, William Smith has written about racial battle fatigue when it comes to black educators. And these are things that we can't lose sight of. Um, so thank you for that. And, um, and it does come at a price um, for so many of us. Um, so, you know, I believe that the, that the revolution has to be defined by joy, right? Um, I was reading Saul Alinsky's book and, um, he was criticizing the younger generation, um, for not making a movement, the kind of thing that you want to be a part of. You look around and you're like, these people are not enjoying the work. They're not having fun. Why do I want to be a part of this kind of movement? And I just want to name that when he was writing that, he was writing about my parents' generation. <laughs> um, and so that kind of goes back a little bit. So we're we're multi-generational here. We got a couple of uh, Gen Xers here. We got a couple of millennials. We, you know, we don't have any Zers yet. Um, you know, but, but they're coming, they can't order for themselves or want to talk on the phone, but they will definitely tattoo a cab wherever they feel like it. <laughs> um, and so, uh, we're going to bring some joy in here right now. So we agreed that music is something that really speaks to all of us. And when we talked a little bit about what motivates us on these days, on these things that we need to do. Uh, we talked a little bit about music, and so what we're going to do is we're going to make y'all a playlist. This is going to be our Voices for Honest Education playlist. So um uh, Chris and Monica, you have ideas on how to pull this, so we thought we'd throw some titles. What do you think? What's a good number of tracks for an Honest Education playlist?
2: At least 10, right? So Okay,
0: yeah. I tend to overdo it. Like I got playlists. That, and then I don't know if anybody, this is maybe just a me thing. I find that I have like 25 playlists on my Spotify and it's really all the same 20 songs, like just on multiple playlists. Is that just me? I think that's just me. Oh man. Um That's okay. My daughter's like, wait, this is the same stuff. I also have a tendency to watch the same five movies over and over again. Like those are the only movies I'm aware of. I'm a creature of habit, but so we're going to, so we'll say 10 tracks. So that's two tracks per fellow. (laughs) It's a lot to think about. And you know what you, you can, we can drop one at a time. If you know, you're two, we can throw Tracy. You look excited. You look ready for this playlist. Um, Should we start with you?
1: Man, I've got this. My students have analyzed <laughs> so many hip hop songs and lyrics when we're learning <laughs> oh, poetry.
0: Bring um, some rap but music.
1: in the spirit of honesty for education, I think the best one to add is "Break the Walls" by Fits and the Tantrums.
0: Oh, I don't perfect. think I know. Wow, "Break the Walls" by Fits and the Tantrums. It's <laughs> amazing. I've never heard of any of those. All right, so Tracy starts our play playlist with "Break the Walls." fits in the tantrums all right who wants who dares who deigns to go next i'm gonna go old school i I gotta do it when i think of you know honest education
4: and fighting a good fight uh woody Guthrie's all you fascists bound to lose you know that's (laughs) from the 1940s i mean you play that today and uh you know there's there's a lot of people out there that are pushing this country in in certain directions and so that's a really motivational one for me
0: Woody Guthrie, man, like it, it's it's amazing. Um, because you name Woody Guthrie for like younger people, and they're kind of like, what? And it's like really powerful stuff. All right, that's very good. Who's next? They oh, love right.
4: it too when they hear the lyrics and stuff. The yep. Kids get they were like, wow, they had this type of like, you know, revolutionaries back in the day. Yeah.
0: Oh man, uh, yeah. It's, yep, absolutely. I had the same experience with Pete Seeger. <laughs>
4: so I mean, that's another one, right? John Brown's body, Pete Seeger. I, that those are two. Yeah, and then I'm done. I'm done. I'm done.
0: There you go. Oh, okay. Wait, is that yours? Is that are you committing to John Brown's body, or did you? I mean, right one? when
4: you said Pete's uh, secret, that's that's what popped in my head, and I just started singing that. So, uh, his <laughs> rendition, and what you know, John Brown. He, <laughs> yeah, quite the. No, nah, that's a
0: John Brown. That's that's my favorite thing about like you know white folks who are willing to engage in the fight. I, I just refer to y'all as having John Brown vibes. Like <laughs> it works. It works. All right. Who would like to add the fourth track? Can I add my fourth and fifth? All right, you can. Uh, You may, sir. (laughs) As
3: one of the resident millennials here, uh, I'm (laughs) feeling a lot of my generational tastes here. But uh, the very nice American idiot by Green Day.
0: Okay. Yes.
3: Like anti-war. I think it was around like the Bush. Chris is
0: pumping his fist for those of you who uh,
3: you know the politics and too much of what was going on at the time. But I think it's like a, you don't want to be an American idiot, right?
0: No, no.
3: Media, so.
0: Definitely. I feel like that's going to be appropriated at some point, And that makes me really sad. Um, so American Idiot by Green Day. All right. And then you have a fifth track for us. Um Where's the love by Black Eyed Peas? Man, you know what? That is right. What's wrong with this world, mama? People exactly. Acting like- yeah.
3: Love it. it's anti-war pro-humanity it talks yep. about war discrimination environment gang
0: violence and gang like violence. yeah
3: here's the best part i looked at the lyrics because you know our whole fellowship is about truth and honesty and 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 and, and this bangrava lyric the truth is kept secret it's swept under the rug because if you never know truth and you never know love
0: oh if you never know truth you never know love i'm telling you this um playlist is going to be fire all right I think we have not heard from Monica yet. Um, yes. okay. Mon- Monica's got a whole catalog. Like th- this whole podcast is eventually just going to be Monica's favorite songs because <laughs> we already have one where she has a bunch of tracks, and so.
2: <laughs> um, I'll just drop. I'll drop one. I do have a few, but I I want to make sure I correct myself from earlier. I, think I, said- I started an advocacy council. Shout out to the teachers who helped me. I'm all about the we. It wasn't me alone, and. Oh, okay. I- I want to just say a shout out to them, and also I think I said our commissioner is elected. No, is he is not. He is appointed. Okay, so oh now, boy,
0: so. oh boy, <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, gotta drop a little public enemy fight the power because yeah. that's what we're doing. We're fighting the powers that be.
0: Fight um, the powers so, that be.
2: Yes, I'll, I'll save right. I'll save another couple until we. <laughs>
0: Yeah. All right. So I'm I'm gonna go in real time and go into my Spotify and let's let's just see. Cause I listen to the same 12 songs over and over again. Um for me, I'm going to add, and I don't know if folks are ready for this. I'm gonna add Buju Bantan's Untold Stories. Um, and so Buju. Man, he'd been through some stuff. <laughs> um, and I just had the opportunity to interview uh, Sulma Arsu-Brown, who wrote this beautiful book called Pelo Malo No Existe, uh, Bad Hair Doesn't Exist. And uh, she reminded me of Bujibantan. Untold Stories is amazing because it just highlights the need to ensure that stories are told, particularly from those of us who come from places where the powers that be um, are motivated to erase our existence and erase our stories. So I believe we are on what is this track eight? Let me count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yep, track eight. Tracy, I believe it's you.
1: Yeah, I think it, it needs to end on a really like fun, joyful note. Like we know that there's mess going on and we That's work right. hard, but we also know how to play. So I'm yeah. throwing in good day by Nappy Roots.
0: Ha, <laughs> yes. Tracy did her homework on this. I just have to uh, point this out. Uh, Stays ready. Whoops. I misspelled that. This is going, I'm typing this as we speak. Good day by the Nappy Roots. All right. Um, So then, so two more tracks. I guess I get one and then Monica gets one. And then TK and Chris, if, if there are tracks that you just can't, like, just have to have on this playlist, like, I'm going to allow it. We're decolonizing numbers as as we do this. So I, uh, who's ready? I feel like we can't have a playlist like this without
4: Tupac, right? Like the nephew of Asada Shakur. I uh, mean, changes is a
0: good one. I'm down for whatever y'all want to do. But that one's it's such a classic. All right. Is that is that your final answer? I'm pointing at the camera changes. <laughs> That's my final answer. That's a good I you know, I actually thought of the same one. Um, So I'll let you do that one and not me. All right. Uh, TK, you look kind of worked up. You looked ready for, to throw a track out there. Not yet. All right. All right. We'll, we'll come back to you, TK. Monica, do you want it? Or you want, or you want me to take it?
2: Um, I will add a little Marvin. You Gay. Go. What's going on?
0: Yeah. What, I, I mean, what was, is going on what's
2: happening? What's going on?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. Um, so now I feel I feel like I need to have something in Spanish um, because although Spanish is my second language, um, I like to sing in Spanish more than I like to sing in English. And this song is called I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's called El Aguante um, by the rapper Residente. Um, and El Aguante, it's it's kind of hard to translate, but in Spanish it's like what we put up with, right? Aguantar is to put up with something, is to endure something and get through it. And it is this incredible song about everything que aguantamos, everything that we just deal with and endure, but it's like a total party song. Um, The music video takes place in a bar and they're just, they're raising their glasses and cheering to el aguante because the struggle is beautiful, right? And I and I think if I was gonna break our rules and add another one, I would actually put um, the beautiful struggle by Talib Kweli. Um, don't follow Kweli on Twitter; he's he's not awesome on Twitter. But um, beautiful struggle is amazing. The struggle is beautiful. We are too strong for your slavery. Any other tracks that people are dying to put on here?
3: I I got some. I think All right, a little bit in queerness, female voices. Let's um, do it. Who in here? uh one is born this way by lady gaga great pro lgbtq anthem that like centers how who you are and how you navigate is valid and should be accepted uh and then the other one a little deeper cut from christina aguilera beautiful uh, also just such a beautiful message um how it really is in the way yeah.
0: that, that song that song hit different than i thought it would like the first time i heard it i'm like okay it's christina aguilera so and then it just got me deep it's like I feel beautiful. It's
3: having another moment, I think. Uh, There was another music video that was sent in like the social media age because a lot of folks are just feeling anxious about everything Yeah, Yeah.
1: I love how we've moved into the warm squishies. I think it's (laughs) not appropriate to dedicate a song to all the teachers listening. And we're going to go back old school, 90s, you know, raised in the 90s. How about Natalie Merchant, Kind and Generous?
3: Oh. It
1: really speaks about every educator i've met on this incredible journey and really the teachers i see working hard in classrooms
0: yeah i think that's what it really comes down to i always think about the poor righteous teachers um which is who we represent and who we would humbly submit that potentially we may be um Well, folks, we, this, this of course went longer than we planned, but it's because when you get, um, when you get these four brilliant, brilliant people on this panel, on the podcast, you know, it's going to be amazing. And there's going to be a lot of ideas. Um, y'all, where does everybody follow you? How do, how do people find you on social media? Drop your handles.
1: I'll start. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm
0: swaggy G on Twitter.
1: (laughs) 2020 Georgia teacher of the year.
4: That's Tracy. Mine's easy. It's just my first and last name at Chris Deer, and that's for Twitter and TikTok.
3: You find me on Twitter before it crashes and crumbles, uh, <laughs> tk or Nagayoshi, N A G A Y O S H
0: I, and even as it crashes and crumbles.
2: <laughs> I am at Texas Toy 2014. And also, if we have a way to drop our website with uh, all of the things that come with the podcast, you can click our faces on our um, contact us page and go to our individual Twitter pages.
0: Hey, That's really cool. And shout out to Monica for that amazing design and doing that kind of stuff. We will include a link to the website um, in the show notes. If you do want to have any of the members of Voices for Honest Education come and speak, um, do a training hang out with you all just hear what you got to say uh we're here for it and uh, we're doing this work that you know we're we're only part of the way through it y'all but it's been such an incredible process um really grateful to all of you thank you all for being on the podcast today
3: thanks for having us appreciate thank it thank
0: you thank you thanks. yeah. So I am de Munoz, um, your Colorado Teacher of the Year for 2021. Um, You are listening to Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. Now, what we do is um, on my count. We're all going to try to say stay dope together. We're saying it from five different states. And so we're going to do that. So in this time of tension, in this holiday season, in this time where you feel like you're fighting for your life and just trying to find a reason to smile, stay optimistic, stay fighting the good fight, stay truthful, stay honest, but above all, you always want to stay dope. Stay Stay dope. dope. <laughs> This is why it's good. There we go.